Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our August 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between some readers. Let's get started. Sexual dysfunction is a significant side effect of serotonergic antidepressants because it often leads to treatment non-adherence. However, sexual dysfunction is often underestimated in clinical trials submitted in support of drug approval, as such assessments are based mainly on unsolicited reporting. As a result, the characterization of sexual adverse events has become an important component of many of the development programs for new antidepressants. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Division of Psychiatry Products, together with the Division of Biometrics I, held a regulatory science forum to examine the measurement of sexual dysfunction in depression trials. This article summarizes the two principal FDA presentations. The first presentation reported the results of a literature search that examined the rates of sexual dysfunction with SSRIs and SNRIs when these rates were ascertained by methods other than unsolicited reports, such as direct questioning or standardized instruments. The second presentation was an exploratory analysis of the FDA's in-house depression trial data submitted as part of new drug applications that used a standardized instrument to assess sexual function. Results of the literature search showed the expected adverse effects of SSRIs and SNRI antidepressants on sexual function. However, the results of the FDA in-house clinical trial data showed no trend for individual drugs or drug classes to impact sexual function. The question raised is why the two standardized instruments, the Changes in Sexual Functioning Questionnaire and the Arizona Sexual Experiences Scale, performed well in the published studies, but not in the exploratory analyses of in-house FDA trial data. In their article, the authors discuss possible reasons for these discrepancies and expand on their concerns with the design of studies that evaluate sexual function in antidepressant drug trials. Poor adherence to long-acting injectable antipsychotics is frequent and associated with a number of negative outcomes. In a recent cluster randomized controlled trial, Researchers tested whether offering financial incentives improved adherence. Over a one-year period, researchers found that adherence was significantly higher in patients who received financial incentives compared to controls who did not receive such incentives. However, some literature on health-related behaviors suggests that the effect of financial incentives may decrease over time. To investigate this, the authors of this article studied whether the effect of financial incentives on adherence to long-acting injectable antipsychotics changes over time. Their work was supported by the National Institutes of Health. The authors found that adherence in the intervention and control groups increased over time. 
However, adherence in the intervention group remained similarly better at each interval. Incentives were therefore effective from the beginning onward, and the effect remained consistently strong over time. The authors also tested whether the total amount of incentives received made a difference to adherence, and found that those who received higher amounts showed poorer adherence. The authors conclude that the success of financial incentives is likely to be apparent within the first three months of implementation. If there is no improvement in the first three months, it is unlikely that the intervention will be successful later. Motor vehicle accidents and accidental injury remain the leading cause of psychological trauma. After accidental injury, one in four patients develop significant post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, symptoms. Memories of fear associated with physical injuries, such as falling from a height or car crashes, are consolidated in the hippocampus. Researchers hope that enhancing neurogenesis in the hippocampus will inhibit the development of fear memories linked to PTSD. Hippocampal neurogenesis is promoted by docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA, which is found at high levels in seafood. In this article funded by the Japan Science and Technology Agency, the authors hypothesize that promoting adult neurogenesis by DHA supplementation early in the post-trauma period might facilitate the clearance of fear memory from the hippocampus and consequently minimize PTSD symptoms. The researchers examined the efficacy of DHA for preventing PTSD in a little over 100 accident-injured patients admitted to an intensive care unit. All patients were taught about their psychological reactions to accidental injury. They were then randomly assigned to receive one and one-half grams per day of DHA or placebo for three months. Study results showed no benefit of DHA for the secondary prevention of PTSD symptoms at three months after severe accidental injury. The authors note that the efficacy of a different ratio and higher doses of omega-3 fatty acids in secondary prevention of PTSD remains to be determined. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit our August table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Children who have parents with a serious mental illness are a neglected group. Relatively little is known about their conditions during childhood. As symptoms of mental illness can substantially impair the quality of parenting, Children who have parents with severe psychiatric disorders are at increased risk of experiencing neglect or otherwise poor conditions during upbringing and may be placed in out-of-home care. In a study funded by foundations in Denmark, a group of researchers set out to examine the rates of placement of children in out-of-home care. They used data from national registers covering the entire population of Denmark from 1968 to the present. They examined the proportion of children being removed from the home if one or both parents suffered from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or depression. The study found that among children who had mothers with schizophrenia, 
40% were placed in care at least once during childhood. If the father had schizophrenia, the rate for child placement in out-of-home care was 20%. Children of parents with bipolar disorder and depression were also at increased risk of being removed from the home, even though the risks were lower for these illnesses. If the mother suffered from bipolar disorder, 20% of children were placed in care, and among children of mothers with depression, 10% were placed in care. The study also found that rates of placement were highest during the child's first year, a finding that indicates that early intervention could be critical for families in which a parent has a severe psychiatric disorder. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit our August table of contents at psychiatrist.com. It is well known that patients with schizophrenia receive suboptimal physical health care, but the reasons for this are unclear. In this month's CME article, sponsored by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the authors aim to identify possible influences a schizophrenia diagnosis has on clinical expectations and decision-making of primary care and mental health providers. After reading a clinical vignette describing a patient with back pain, Providers responded to a series of questions about the hypothetical patient's expected treatment adherence, the patient's ability to understand health education literature, and competence. Other questions asked whether the provider would refer the patient to additional services or evaluations. One vignette described a psychiatrically stable, high-functioning person with schizophrenia, and a second described an identical patient without schizophrenia. The authors found that providers in general had lower expectations for patients with schizophrenia than seemed warranted. They were less likely to refer these patients to a weight management program. Specifically, providers expected the vignette patients with schizophrenia to be less adherent to treatment, less able to read and understand educational material, and less capable of managing their health and personal affairs. In their conclusion, the authors point out that studies of provider bias usually examine only attitudes. This study is one of the first to include clinical decision-making as an outcome. However, they acknowledge this research is limited because it used hypothetical vignettes. They encourage future researchers to examine how providers' attitudes impact their actual, rather than hypothetical, clinical decisions. Evidence from imaging, genetic, and neurochemical studies has suggested that the neurotransmitter glutamate may be dysregulated in obsessive-compulsive disorder and therefore may be a fruitful target for novel treatments. In particular, the glutamate modulator Riluzole, which is FDA-approved for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, has shown great promise in open-label studies. The authors of this article conducted a double-blind, placebo-controlled pilot trial of Riluzole added to stable SSRI treatment. The study received support from the National Institute of Mental Health, the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, and the State of Connecticut. The authors aimed to test the feasibility and tolerability of Riluzole augmentation. 
The small sample size, though, allowed only large effects to be definitively demonstrated. Riluzol was generally well tolerated. Nausea was significant in one patient. The authors found no statistically significant benefit of riluzol. Inpatient showed no benefit. Outpatient showed a nominal improvement in the riluzol group, especially in the intensity of obsessions. Three outpatients treated with riluzol showed a clinically significant improvement of greater than 25%. No placebo-treated patients achieved this level of response. The authors conclude that while the effects shown in their study are clinically significant, definitive effects will require a substantially larger study. Previous studies have found that patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, have difficulty remembering verbal information. Whether a relationship exists between the ability to remember verbal information and response to first-line treatments for PTSD is unclear. Knowing more about this relationship could help clinicians offer patients treatments from which they will likely benefit. In the current study, supported through funding from the University of Amsterdam, 140 PTSD patients were randomly assigned to two forms of trauma-focused psychotherapy. The ability to remember verbal information was assessed through two tasks, one that involved learning and remembering a grocery list, and a second that required patients to memorize and reproduce a short newspaper article. The authors found that patients who demonstrated poor verbal memory performance before entering treatment exhibited significantly worse treatment response to both forms of psychotherapy. By using the patient's ability to remember verbal information before treatment, the authors could also correctly classify 76% of the patients as treatment responders. According to the authors, these results suggest that memory measures can be helpful in determining which PTSD patients will probably benefit from trauma-focused treatment and which are unlikely to benefit. The authors further conclude that treatment perspectives of PTSD patients with poor verbal memory should be improved. Time-release drug formulations release their contents after a time delay, a little at a time, or in some other specially designed way. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade takes a look at the applications, advantages, and disadvantages of using time-release formulations in the clinical setting. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight three educational activities. Did you know that binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder in the United States? Or that only about 10% of people with anorexia and bulimia are male, while men make up 40% of those with binge eating disorder? View our first CME activity, a webcast supported by an independent educational grant from Shire to learn how to assess for and diagnose binge eating disorder and to understand the current pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatment options available for this condition. 
With the increasing number of available insomnia medications, how do you choose the best treatment for your patients? Explore our second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Merck, to gain a better understanding of how various medications affect sleep processes and which agents enhance sleep-promoting systems or block wake-promoting systems. Do you consider cognitive symptoms when selecting a medication for major depressive disorder? Take part in our third CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Decatur, U.S. Regent, and Lundbeck, to discover how to use cognitive scales to evaluate patient symptoms and needs and to understand the effects of various antidepressant medications on cognition. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.